It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Are Curses Real? This is part one of our multiple episodes, Cursed series. Have you ever felt like you or your family or someone you know has been cursed? What kind of evil could be driving these things? Are curses real or could they be imagined? Did God himself introduce the world to curses? Is all of this God's fault? We'll examine all of this and more. But first, let's set a firm and factual foundation. Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome everyone, I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. It's a privilege. And Julie is also with us. Hi, gentlemen. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. The history and cultures of our world have brought us to where we are today. While various cultures have fueled wonderful traditions, solid communities, and exemplary progress, many cultures have also brought us darkness, superstitions, and a strong desire to harm those they see as enemies. Enter the worldwide phenomenon of curses. To quote from Wikipedia, a curse is any expressed wish that some form of adversity or misfortune will befall or attach to one or more persons, a place, or an object. If we look, we find the existence of curses all through human history and across a multitude of cultures. So where do curses come from? Are they real? Should we be afraid of being cursed? So, Julie, as we get started with this, why would we talk about a subject like this? Well, the word curse is one of the top words searched for at ChristianQuestions.com, and we keep receiving emails from listeners about curses. I'll give you a few examples. Nalu emailed inspiration at ChristianQuestions.com and said, I did something many years ago, and now I feel the parents of my friend cursed me. If I pray to God, will he free me from the curse? And Jason asked, I'm working very hard to free myself from generational curses and curses spoken over me by family members. I feel I've been living under a curse my whole life. I'm a committed Christian. I want all the blessings that have been stolen from me back. How? And then Sheila emailed, my son feels he's been cursed because so many things have happened to him last year. And then John messaged us from the CQ app just this weekend and asked, how can I get rid of curses? It's a big question out there. The subject of curses is a massive subject. We will break it down into three primary parts. In this first part, we will examine the general phenomena of curses from a traditional, scientific, and biblical perspective. In part two, we will look at curses in the Old Testament to see who said and did what and what it all means. In part three, we will examine curses in the New Testament, observe the similarities and differences from Old Testament curses, and see what our Christian responsibilities are. So we've got a lot of ground to cover over the next three weeks. And folks, stay with us on this because there's so much to learn. So I, I was personally amazed at how much there is to learn and to sort out, to find out truth 
on the matter of curses. So as we begin, was God, the creator of all things, responsible for bringing curses to humanity? Is God responsible? As we get into this, there are two important terms to help us understand. These two terms appear in definitions of the several biblical words that are translated curse. Jonathan, what are the two words and what do they mean? Well, the first is execrate, and it means feel or express great loathing for. And the second is imprecate, a spoken curse. Now, Rick, there's a big difference between loathing someone and wishing evil upon someone. And, and that's going to be an important aspect of this whole conversation as we unfold it. Well, before we get too far into it, have you heard of the Superman curse? Because it's said that misfortune follows those involved with Superman-related television shows and movies. This started when the original actor who starred in the TV show called Adventures in Superman in the 1950s shot himself at age 45. This curse is so well known that Wikipedia says, quote, some talent agents cite the curse as the reason for the difficulty in casting actors in the role in the live action feature films, end quote. Interesting. All right. So there is, and, and there are a lot of curses in a lot of different areas, or we'll, we'll talk about legitimacy in a, in a bit, but that's an example to get us started. They're out there in all kinds of places. Let's go to scripture to begin. God proclaiming the consequences of sin in the Garden of Eden. He did that in Genesis chapter 3. We're just going to jump into Genesis 3, verse 14, then verses 16 and 17. Jonathan, bring us through that and define some things as you go. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now, that word cursed means to execrate, and we just talked about that. That means feel or express great loathing for. And here, God cursed Satan in the form of a serpent. The consequences continue. Verse 16 and 17. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat it all the days of your life. God also cursed the ground for Adam's sake. This is evidence that God brought curses right at the very beginning. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? What do we do with God bringing the idea of curses in right when the first events seem to be happening in humanity? We're going to actually come back to these verses later on and, and delve into that. We wanted to put the verses on the table and establish, yeah, there is, a, there is a role that God plays here. What is it, though? What does it really mean? That's what we want to unfold. I've got another curse example. Oh, do you? Have you ever almost involuntarily said, oh, God bless you after someone sneezes? Oh, yeah. yeah There's sure. a few origin stories for this. And one is that back in the first century, a sneeze was the body's way of getting rid of evil spirits. So countering with God bless you was a good luck charm, providing protection against their curses. Maybe we shouldn't be saying this. Mm, yeah, you know, that's one of those things you don't even think about. <laughs> right. You don't. And, and so it's the idea of getting rid of evil spirits. That's right. Wow. Okay. I think I'm going to change my language on that. <laughs> All right. 
So we're talking about God bringing curses to humanity. And again, folks, don't jump to a conclusion on that. Let us unfold this, because this is very, very, very important. Are God's curses that we mentioned similar to the curses we see happening throughout the world? This is an important question, and it will be an important distinction. So, Jonathan, we had started in in the opening remarks talking about uh, a quote from Wikipedia. Let's go back to that quote and finish it a little bit. In particular, curse may refer to such a thing as a wish or a pronouncement made effective by a supernatural or a spiritual power, such as a god or gods, a spirit or a natural force, or else as a kind of spell by magic or witchcraft. In the latter sense, a curse can also be called a hex or a jinx. In many belief systems, the curse itself or accompanying ritual is considered to have some causative force in the result. So the important things here are we have the idea that a curse is wishing harm on someone with some kind of supernatural power attached to it. And in many belief systems, the curse itself brings the power to bring the harm. It's not just a wish. It actually brings the power to bring the harm. Well, have you heard of the Hope Diamond? Are you doing another curse? Um, There's another one. It's over 45 carats and estimated to be worth more than $300 million. And it is said to have caused divorce, suicide, mysterious deaths, uh, financial ruin, and much more. And since it now resides in the United States at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, some believe it's still cursing the American people right now. Wow. Okay. Didn't know that one either. Didn't know that either. The Hope Diamond. $300 million. Amazing. Yeah. I'd like just a chip of it. (laughs) (laughs) So over the course of this three-part series, and Jonathan, you already mentioned this, we're going to look at what it means to curse someone and then come back to God's original curses and our Christian responsibilities. And folks, let me just tell you now, there's some very important differences that we need to understand and draw, but we need to paint the picture of what it looks like within this world first. And that's what we want to focus on right now. So we're going to do a lot of quoting from a lot of different sources to put some things on the table so we can understand. Jonathan, our first source is uh, an excerpt from theconversation.com. Why do people believe in curses? What do we have? The power of curses to influence people stems from belief in their veracity or truthfulness or accuracy. This often arises from an external locus of control where people feel unable to influence events. In the absence of preconceived uh, control, people become more accepting of mysterious external forces. Psychologists refer to this as magic thinking. So uh, before we get too far in, uh, we're surrounded by curses. So whether we realize it or not, they're so commonplace, we're all affected by them. Have you heard of Busby's stoop chair? Never. Okay. Well, it's also called dead man's chair. So that should give you a clue about what kind of curse this is. It said the murderer Thomas Busby cursed it before he was executed in 1702 in England. Here's what the curse said. Death shall come swiftly to anyone that dares sit in my chair. And allegedly many have died who've sat on it. So it's on display in the town's museum but it's hanging on the wall to prevent anyone from sitting on it. And for the record, it's been dated to have been made around 138 years after Busby's execution, and yet the spooky legend lives on. Oh, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? I was going to say, people have died who sat on the chair. Yeah, it was 300 years ago, so I would expect that they would have passed on at some point. But anyway, 
But the, you, Julie, the point you're making is curses are everywhere in every part of our society, and I don't think we realize it. What does it mean? How real are they? Well, in that, those few lines, Jonathan, that you, you, you read, uh, you, you mentioned something about an external locus of control. That's a phrase that we're not familiar with. What is locus of control? Well, our source psychology today, locus of control, how do we determine our successes and failures? August 2nd, 2017, an individual's belief system regarding the causes of his or her experiences and the factors to which that person attributes success or failure. All right. So let me go back into what internal locus of control means. This means that the person attributes their success to their own efforts and abilities and these kind of people tend to be more achievement-oriented and have a higher self-esteem. So when we're talking about this locus of control, what we're looking at is the psychological tendency toward having curses, quote-unquote, have an effect on you versus the psychological tendency to not have them have an effect of you, on you. So an internal locus of control basically says it doesn't affect you so much because you believe that you, you are kind of responsible from the inside out as to creating your, your destiny, your, your next steps, versus being a victim. Here's the thing. We should have an internal locus of control. But as Christians, as Christians, we must strive for our internal locus of control to not be our earthly mind, but rather our spiritual mind. Jonathan, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Have you not known that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit in you, which you have from God? And ye are not your own. God's spirit is in us, and therefore we have this internal control from God. It's an amazing thing. That's what we should be looking for to control us, not what Rick thinks, not what Rick wants, but how Rick wants to serve God through the influence of God's spirit. Julie, what about this external locus of control? Well, someone with an external locus attributes his or her success to luck or fate. And they're more likely to experience anxiety because they feel they're not in control of their own lives. So we become victims of our circumstances? That's, ex that's exactly right. And it's thought that we're born with either a more internal or an external locus, but it's also shaped by childhood experiences. And that Psychology Today article, Jonathan, that you quoted from, it went on to say this, children who were raised by parents who encourage their independence and help them learn the connection between actions and their consequences tended to have a more well-developed internal locus of control. And I thought it was very interesting that researchers followed more than 7,500 British adults since birth. And those who had an internal locus of control by the age 10 were less likely to be overweight at age 30, less likely to describe their health as poor, or to show high levels of psychological stress. So there's something to this. And so this can be a learned behavior, though. And, and in relation to curses, all right, this is what we want to focus on. Do you feel like you're being cursed or have been cursed or your family's been cursed? What's your locus of control? We talked about the internal being God's spirit in a Christian. What about the external? Well, as Christians, we must strive for our external locus of control to be driven by our faith in God's providence because we see the world as coming to us through the providence of God, not through curses and all of these other things. Jonathan, Romans 8 to 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. If we see the world around us in our experiences through God's providence, we don't have this worry about curses, 
and we can see it through the eyes of godliness, and it changes everything. What we want to do is we want to go from fearing curses to faith and courage. Jonathan, what's our first step in how to do that? As we resist the suggestion of curses, remember, in our present evil world, we will always face issues of control. Let us tightly grasp the internal and external control from our gracious Father in heaven and through our redeeming Lord Jesus. Remember, this can be learned behavior, and as a Christian, this is something we absolutely want to learn. The whole idea of cursing someone or being cursed can be scary. We need to know how all of this really works. Besides this locus of control, what else do we need to understand to fight the feelings of being cursed? Well, we've just scratched the surface here, as battling the very idea of curses and their suggested power over us is multifaceted. The key direction we want to focus on is the power of our minds for both good and evil, coupled with the power of our inborn or developed personality traits. So we've got the power of our minds, and now we're going to focus much more on the power of our inborn or developed personality traits. Yeah, but Rick... Yeah. Our curse is real. Is it all just superstition and the power of suggestion? Or should we be on guard against satanic influences at work? Yes. (laughs) Yes, curses are real. And yes, most of them, I truly believe, are superstition. But we can't just write everything off and say it's all superstition. We must be careful because Satan, as we will see going through this podcast, Satan is wily, he is determined, and he wants to make things hard for us. He wants, he wishes bad things to happen upon those who follow Christ. He does. The scriptures tell us that. So we do need to be careful. However, the big picture, I truly believe that most of this is actually superstition, and that's why we're spending so much time on the psychology of the matter. Okay, so I'm going to throw out a question for you. Have you heard of the curse of the Iceman named Otzi? No. No. <laughs> I didn't think so. I thought you were going to talk about the thing from Frozen or something, that little guy. Well, he is He is frozen. He's a well-preserved <laughs> frozen mummy discovered by two German hikers on the border between Austria and Italy in 1991. And it's said to have caused at least seven deaths of people involved with the body, including the man who made the discovery and the man writing a book about the discovery. And Otzi is currently in a museum in Bolzano, Italy. Never knew that one either. But folks, Julie, you're illustrating. They're everywhere. Yes, they are. They're everywhere in every culture. And we need to be aware. That's why we're talking about this. Uh, Let's go, Jonathan, uh, to to another source. What's the source? And just a a quick introduction here. Well, an excerpt from theconversation.com. Why do people believe in curses? August 30th, 2019. Belief in curses is associated with certain personality characteristics particularly tolerance of ambiguity and neuroticism. So there are many articles that talk about the tendency to belief in curses because of many, many different external things and internal things. We think it's appropriate to introduce all of these things to you and to say, hey, are these some of the things that you might be struggling with? Let's help put it in order. So as we deal with curses, we want to look at the psychology of the matter as the scriptures of the matter, and then the reality of what you're dealing with. So we're going to sum up those few lines, Jonathan, that you just read from this article, and 
other pieces from several other articles that focus on how personality traits increase our susceptibility to feeling cursed. Uh, Julie, Jonathan mentioned in that reading tolerance of ambiguity. What does that mean? Well, that describes the degree to which an individual can cope with uncertainty. And those with a low tolerance of ambiguity, they're going to look for closure. And that'll manifest as the failure to critically consider evidence, and they just jump to conclusions. And this could lead to indiscriminate, premature acceptance of material because you want that closure. So you're looking to find an answer, to find something logical to make this all fit. Sometimes a curse in our minds is logical because it makes the pieces fit together. That's right. That's exactly right. And we have to be careful not to run down that road because sometimes God's providence leaves things unanswered for quite some time in our lives. Whatever our natural or learned tolerance of ambiguity is, as Christians, we need to challenge it with scriptural principle. 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. See, the tolerance of ambiguity, if it's low, you say, wow, these strange things are happening to me. I must be cursed. God must not like me. Th- this and, th- and, and we create these scenarios. And the apostle Peter is telling us, look, don't be surprised when things look strange in your life. Don't be surprised because it is God's providence working with you. It's not something that's, that's overwhelming you. It's God's providence. Don't be surprised. We need to tame our lack of tolerance for ambiguity in faith in God's providence. Let's look at the, the thought. Jonathan also mentioned neuroticism. Now, nobody really wants to talk about neuroticism, so Julie, we're going to ask you to do that. <laughs> well, this is a very serious term. It's a tendency towards anxiety, depression, self-doubt, and other negative feelings. So having this kind of trait can facilitate worry, concern, and even rumination about curses, where you think about it over and over and over again. And we did want to reference episodes 1124 and 1125, Does My Anxiety or Depression Invalidate My Christianity? Parts 1 and 2, excellent for uh, that topic. And so the idea of, 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 of just having issues with being able to cope with things. Folks, look, let's be honest. Most of us have issues along those lines have some kind of anxiety or, or self-doubt and so forth. And it's okay. The issue comes when we create answers for those things that are not scriptural. And all of these, well, I won't say all, but many, 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 many of these superstitions and curses fill that and give us something to ruminate on. And then you start going and playing the, 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 the tape over and over and over and over and over again. And suddenly this curse idea becomes a driving force in your life. We don't want that. Whatever our tendencies are toward anxiety or doubt or whatever, we need to continually engage in the internal battle of reminding ourselves that in this present day, what we are experiencing is what Jesus told us to keep focused on. What did he tell us? Well, let's look at Matthew 6, 34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself, for each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What is Jesus saying with those words? He's saying, don't worry about the tomorrow. Take care of today. Be present in today. Work on today. Deal with today's challenges with today's faith. That's what he's talking about. This is a great way to begin to undo our tendency to lean towards things from the outside that may have very, very suspicious 
origins when we look at these things. And being already prone to self-doubt and anxiety can certainly make us more susceptible when bad things keep happening to us and we don't know why. And since we're so used to this idea of curses and being cursed, it's reasonable in our mind then that we are indeed cursed. So this brings up another reason why people believe in curses, and that's cultural beliefs, culturally acceptable ideas like the evil eye protecting against those who want to undo our good fortune. We talked about that extensively in episode 1149. It was called Ghosts, Reincarnation, and Humanity, What's Real, Part 2. So cultural beliefs also have a major effect on us. And again, we're looking at our, our, our inborn or developed personality traits. And a lot of that does come from the culture that we come from. So look, whatever our background, we need to remember that we have walked away from the thinking of that background and those experiences and given our lives into the hands of our loving God. Remember, you've walked away from those things. Our life is to be remade in Christ. Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And the Apostle Paul was an accomplished man. He had power, he had influence, he had stature, he had knowledge, he had a following, and he walked away from all of it. We also need to do that, especially if our culture or the ambiguity that we suffer from or or, or any of these things bring us to the idea of, oh, I must be cursed. Well, let's think about it. In short, our personality characteristics can play a significant role in how we manage the perceived threat of curses, the perceived threat threat of curses. So Jonathan, from fearing curses to faith and courage, how do we make that leap? When facing the challenging uncertainty of feeling that curses can affect us, let us always remember we are called of God. When God called us, he knew who we were and he knew we could be faithful to him. Stand in the courage of our calling. And and Rick, I need to say that again and personalize it. If I know God called me, He knows who I am, and he knows I can be faithful. Now, that's encouraging. It is. It is. And and, and folks, if you are wrestling with the idea of curses, think about it in the terms that Jonathan just expressed to you, that God knows us. He knows where we come from. He knows our background. He knows our history, and he knows that you can be faithful. So let's begin to put things to rest. So I just have a question that I know people are thinking. So does that mean that Christians cannot be cursed by someone or something? And I'm hoping that we're going to get into that in at least in some part. Yes, absolutely. Positively will. Okay. Um, So I've got another excerpt from you for you from the conversation.com article called why do people believe in curses from 2019? It says in extreme cases, belief in curses can undermine confidence in oneself and one's future success. Psychologists refer to this as self-fulfilling prophecy. This is where belief in a curse produces the perception of inevitable misfortune. And indeed, the suggestion, the mere suggestion of bad luck can produce negative outcomes. Researchers call this the nocebo effect. Okay, the nocebo effect. That's another word I never heard of. So we're going to have to define that. And nocebo, first of all, you said something, the perception of inevitable misfortune. And people fall into that, 
And when something is inevitable, there's no way out. And we're here to tell you that we need to rethink this. What is this nocebo effect? Well, nocebo is the opposite of a placebo. We've all heard of a placebo. So Jonathan, let's compare the two. Let's, let's define them through Oxford English Dictionary. A placebo is a harmless pill, medicine, or procedure prescribed more for the psychological benefit to the patient than for any physiological effect. A substance that has no therapeutic effect used as a control in testing new drugs, a measure designed merely to calm or to please someone. Now, a nocebo is a detrimental effect on health produced by a psychological or psychosomatic factors, such as negative expectations of treatment or prognosis. And a nocebo describes a case where putting something in a negative frame of mind has an adverse effect on their health or well-being. So we've got placebo, a positive effect, and nocebo, a negative effect. Yeah, let me give you some examples of a nocebo because a lot of us haven't heard of that. Um, It's telling people a medical procedure will be extremely painful makes it more likely that certain people will experience more pain. And telling people about the side effects of a drug makes it more likely for some people to report experiencing those effects, even when they were given a harmless substance like a sugar pill. And people have had their doctors tell them they've had a terminal illness with so many months to live. They die within the predicted time only to find an autopsy. The wrong diagnosis was given and the person was perfectly healthy. And volunteers, part of a study looking for a link between mobile phones and headaches reported severe headaches, they didn't realize that the phone they were given was an empty shell. So our minds are much more powerful than we think. And especially when it comes to negative outcomes and curses, the idea, the superstition of curses brings us to that inevitability of negative outcome. So with both a placebo and a nocebo, the results are based on perception, not reality. As Christians... As Christians, we must be on our guard to see the reality of what ultimately brings hope and fulfillment to our lives. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So in the scripture, it's talking about putting our hope on the uncertainty of riches. And that's where you have the placebo, nocebo thing happening. You've got an uncertainty, and in our mind falls prey to that uncertainty and will interpret it one way or another. And if you're thinking in terms of curses, your mind interprets it in a very negative way. We need to get away from that and place our hope in the providence of God, which incidentally never has a negative end result ever. Jonathan, from fearing curses to faith and courage, what is it? As the belief in curses is subtle and widespread, let us be sure to not model our thinking or actions after such fictitious thinking. Instead, let us think and act based upon the facts of grace and hope from our Heavenly Father. So where do we put our greatest credibility in our lives? God and the scriptures. And without that eternal credibility, our faith is going to be on shaky ground. Absolutely. And we really do need to be very, very, very uh, cognizant of all of these things because we have to put it in its proper perspective. As we further examine curses, 
it is beginning to become obvious that the power of suggestion is quite powerful. Is it possible that our fear of curses can have physiological causes and not spiritual causes? As we dig more deeply into the suggestive power of curses, we inevitably need to spend some time on human physiology. We have already examined the power of internal versus external control, the power of our personality characteristics, and the power of suggestion. Now, what about the power of biology, the power of biology in relation to feeling like you are cursed or your family's been cursed? What about the power of biology? Okay, but before we get into the science of it all, I've got one last curse example. Have you heard of the curse of King Tut? You might have. I think I heard of that one. So allegedly in the tomb of Tutankhamun in Egypt, a curse was found that said this, death comes on wings to he who enters the tomb of a pharaoh. And many involved in the expedition are said to have died mysteriously. All right. So (laughs) wherever you go, whatever happens, there seems to be some kind of curse lurking in the background, many of which we've heard of, most of which we haven't. The point is they're everywhere. What do we do? What we're going to do in this segment is something very unique. We're going to look into epigenetics and see what are epigenetics. We'll talk about that in a moment. We're going to see some amazing things that can relate to how we as humans process our reactions, and we're going to focus it specifically on the idea of curses. Our amazement when we look at this physiological makeup was shared by King David long ago when he wrote Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. For you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We folks and in the 21st century, we are just beginning to discover the depth of the wonder with which the human form is put together. David wrote that thousands of years ago, and we are now seeing the physical evidence of what he wrote come to be right before our eyes. So we went to our resident expert, my friend, and professor of microbiology at Marshall University, Dr. Wendy Trina, and we asked her to tell us what this relatively new study of epigenetics is and how it might explain what some people call generational curses. And we're going to talk a lot more of that in part two of this series. But I asked her first to just explain to us what this is all about. Every one of us is defined by our genomes, which is essentially the collection of genes we've inherited from our parents. However, our traits and characteristics are also influenced by the environment and our experiences. And this is the component we typically refer to as nurture. It is generally accepted that both nature and nurture both contribute to making us who we are. And although the human genome was sequenced nearly two decades ago, there is still much to be learned about exactly how much our genes are responsible for certain behaviors and characteristics and how much is determined by the environment and also how these components work together. The exciting field of epigenetics investigates how the environment can influence or change patterns of gene expression in our cells. Epigenetic patterns can affect many things like our behaviors, responses, and susceptibility to various diseases. But unlike genetic changes, epigenetic changes are reversible and do not change your DNA sequences, but rather how and when a DNA sequence is read. 
Epigenetic changes are chemical markers that are added to specific sites along the genome, and what chemical is added and where determines the effect that occurs. Epigenetic changes have been linked to all sorts of issues like metabolic diseases, cancers, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, and PTSD. So these epigenetic modifications switch specific genes on and off. Although the DNA sequence itself doesn't change, those changed markers that kind of sit on top of the DNA can be passed down through generations. So what does that mean? <laughs> and, and the idea, again, folks, we're, 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 we're applying this directly to the feeling of, of curses, to the, to the fear of curses and, and, and generational curses. Let's follow this through and see where it leads. There is a whole hidden world of biological information within each of us. This is what we're, we're unfolding here. This helps us understand the uniqueness we all have and therefore the unique challenges each of us face. The Apostle Paul actually hinted at this uniqueness. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For among human beings, who knows a man's inner thoughts except the man's own spirit within him? In the same way also, only God's Spirit is acquainted with God's inner thoughts. But we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which comes forth from God, that we may know the blessing that have been so freely given to us by God. So in this scripture, it's talking about among humans. Who knows a man's inner thoughts except the man's own spirit within him? And reading that scripture in light of this understanding, not, let, me, let me rephrase that. I don't understand epigenetics at all. I understand what, what Dr. Wendy said on the surface. In light of realizing that there is a physiological change with certain things that attach to the DNA but don't change it, helps me to look at this scripture and say the Apostle Paul had an insight that each of us is entirely unique in our thinking. That's why he says you can't know the, the, the inner thoughts of somebody, somebody else because they're wired differently. When we say that, there is physiological proof of that. This is big because if we are, folks, if you are afraid, afraid of curses, listen carefully to what unfolds here because this can actually be very helpful to give you something to hold on to and actually some hope. So we know that parents pass on their DNA to their children, but can they also pass on these chemical markers that change how our DNA is read? Well, let's ask Dr. Wendy. Now, the interesting question is whether or not these epigenetic changes can be passed on to one's offspring. In other words, if you acquire a metabolic disease through environmental factors, will that tendency be passed on to your children or even your grandchildren? Until recently, we thought the answer was no. In fact, the data traditionally shows that in mammals, the slate is essentially wiped clean of any epigenetic modification and the offspring begins anew. However, a small number of studies have shown that this reprogramming does not always occur completely, leaving a few modifications behind and thus leaving open the possibility for transgenerational inheritance related especially to things like metabolic disorders such as diabetes and obesity. These studies also show that when these environmentally induced disorders were prevalent in fathers, the offspring had an increased risk or tendency for developing these conditions as well. So this idea that these markers can be left behind, these studies are beginning to show that it is possible that some of these things are can pass from generation to generation in a physiological sense. 
And that is a fascinating thing. Uh, they, they, they thought that the, the wiring would be wiped clean from one generation to the other, but it wasn't. So this is a big surprise in science, and within the last decade or so, they're beginning to uncover, wait a minute, this is not going the way we thought it was going. Now, look, this can be an unsettling possibility, like, oh no, what, what have I inherited? But it also can be encouraging as well. Again, let's go back to Scripture. Although he wasn't referring to epigenetics, the Apostle Paul showed us how to apply encouragement to the paradox to the paradox of our fleshly being. This is a wonderful scripture in light of this epigenetic information. Romans 7, 21 to 25. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So the Apostle Paul is basically saying, let me translate this into epigenetic language. Not really, this is a Rick opinion, okay? But the idea is, he's saying that whatever I'm wired toward, it's there. And I have to acknowledge that it's there, but I don't have to follow it. I can have this inner struggle and rise to the level of Christ-likeness, even if whatever it is is tugging me in the other direction. So this is important. As Christians, we can be encouraged when overcoming the irrational fears of many things, including curses, by accepting the duality of our physical being, striving for a spiritual life. Now, in regards to this epigenetic thought, I'm going to throw out a thought, just, just a thought at this point. What if Satan, what if Satan, he was Lucifer, he was one of the high, high, high spirit beings way back in the times of creation. What if he knew about DNA? And what if he knew about these, 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 these chemical markers? And what if he knew that he could push certain experiences to create these chemical marks to put people into a position where they would be more bent toward sin. What if? I mean, we don't know, but what if? Well, Satan, the psychopath, wants <laughs> to do harm to everything God created. Remember, he said, I will be like the Most High. In his sick way, he can create, manipulate, guide, direct to control people, brainwash them. Yeah. Yeah. He wants what God loves. It's revenge. So, all right, so let's go back to Dr. Wendy, who describes an important study to get us thinking. In a study carried out in mice, the mice were subjected to behavioral conditioning where they were exposed to a specific scent and then administered an electric shock. Over time, the mice associated the scent with the trauma, and eventually just the scent alone would trigger the trauma response. Now their offspring, as well as the next generation, also demonstrated a fear of that same smell, even though they had never been exposed to the scent before or conditioned to react in that manner. This study suggests that the scent response was passed on to the next generation. Even physical changes in their brains were observed. Now, similar tendencies have been described in studies of children of Holocaust survivors and more recently, babies born to women who experienced trauma from the World Trade Center attacks of 9-11. In the latter case, lower levels of cortisol were observed in both the mothers and their offspring, attributed to PTSD during gestation. 
This resulted in children who developed hypertension, insulin resistance, and depression. So scientists found that all three generations of mice had this higher than average number of olfactory receptors to detect the odor. So it seems as though those mice inherited the trauma of their ancestors. And human studies, as she said, in 9-11 and in the Holocaust have been interpreted with similar conclusions. So just you, you, you look at that and, and with those mice, these, these generations of mice had a fear of a smell that they had no idea what it was. And it was not natural to the mice except for the ones who had been conditioned you got to look at this and say, wow, there's something here. And again, do you have this tendency? But even though our biology wants it to be uh, what it wants it to be, we're not required to give into it. So again, again, the Apostle Paul prepares us for such challenges by displaying his own clear spiritual focus. And again, folks, I want to remind you, we're talking about the propensity to look at curses and to say, I'm cursed. My family is cursed. I am afraid. I don't know what to do. I need to break it. Maybe what we need to break is the thinking that's feeding the superstition. May, and that's why we're going through all of these things, to make sure we're focusing on the right things here. Let's look at Philippians 4, 12 to 13. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Apostle Paul is saying, whatever it is that I, that I have to experience, I can manage because I've got Christ. That's what he's saying. And look, whatever our wiring is, whatever the, the, the chemical markers are, we can still focus that way. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's just going to go away. It means it, it, it's a fight, but we need to move forward. As Christians, we are compelled to fulfill the calling of our discipleship and not what we naturally crave. And I want to add one more study that Dr. Wendy told me about looking at epigenetic markers in patients with military post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, PTSD. The epigenetic modification actually changed as a result of successful treatment. And here's a quick quote from that study. This study showed a clear link between a psychological or behavioral modification and a detectable biological change. So in other words, they were able to remove that marker and they, we could prove it physically. And we're going to list all of the professional references um, that Dr. Wendy gave us in the bonus material of the CQ Rewind show notes for this week found on our website at christianquestions.com. And, you know, w w with the PTSD, I can actually personally testify to that because my wife went through PTSD and I won't get into the details, but I watched her, her life fall apart before both of our eyes and it was the most unbelievable thing it's like what happened here and she got treatment and it was difficult and i watched her recover and i watch her now versus then and it is like night and day it is like night and day something changed in that treatment and what you describe really does fit and i was thinking about these markers now if we are faithful in our christian walk our job will be to help rehabilitate mankind in God's kingdom. We could help by saying, hey, we had markers just like you. Let me help you overcome as God helped me overcome. Whatever the case is, folks, what we're saying is if you have a fear of curses and you think that they're in your life, think again. Look at things through a scriptural eyes. And as we unfold the three parts of the series, we're going to get into much, much more on this. Jonathan, going from fear, fearing curses to faith and courage, what do we have? Regarding our resistance to the suggestion of curses, 
Let us realize how frail our humanity is on every level. Let us resolve to replace the hunger of our natural inclinations with the nourishment of strength available from our Lord Jesus. There's hunger, but then there's strength. Where are you finding the strength to take care of that hunger? All of this epigenetic research is enlightening and helps us focus in on separating curse facts from curse fiction. How far into Christianity has the mentality of generational or individual curses come? Should we be scared? You know, th this is a big question, and unfortunately the answer can be depressing. As with any other aspect of life, there are those who claim the name of Christ and use it for personal gain. The superstition of curses is big everywhere you look. And unfortunately, the business of removing these curses is alive and well. This isn't limited to your local fake psychic on the corner, although they have scammed people out of millions of dollars promising to remove curses. But if you don't fall for that, perhaps you're going to be taken in by some of these popular churches who are happy to sell you books and courses on how to remove curses and give you all that you ever wanted in life. Yeah. And like I said, the answer can be depressing. We're going to look at, at very briefly, we're going to look at the business of curse removal, both outside of Christianity and inside. Jonathan, let's start with outside of Christianity. What do you have? Well, our source here is westsidetoday.com, uh, titled Breakfast Food to Remove Curses. It was done on March 10th, 2020. And this is a quote from the Los Angeles Police Department. These types of scams are more common than one may think and target emotionally, physically, and spiritually vulnerable victims. The scams often involve eggs and or bananas to determine the extent of a curse and a promise to return any money or valuables the victim may provide the suspect. Victims are often reluctant to report these incidents out of embarrassment and fear of being ostracized and scorned by their friends and family. So basically, we're not going to get into this deeply, but when you've got them down, you just kick them around because they're too embarrassed to say something, and people get up, end up taking, being taken advantage of terribly. And this is widespread. There were all kinds of articles on, on, on these kinds of scams in relation to curses. Folks, please understand, most of these things, absolutely most of them are just superstition. We need to, to see things as they are. Parts two and three are going to get into some of the realities. So we're just laying the groundwork right here. Let's go now to the business of curse removal inside of Christianity. Julie, what do we have? Mm, now, this one, this one made me mad. So <laughs> this is um, certain churches, like uh, those, in the those that teach prosperity gospel, they're preaching that God is the judge in the courts of heaven. This is a term that was new to me. And coincidentally, these courts of heaven allegedly operate similar to our modern legal system. The theology is based on this idea that God gave Adam legal authority over earth. Now, when Adam sinned, he lost that authority to Satan. And so they say that God can't legally take action unless somehow we go back and take that authority from Satan and give it back to God. So this is why, supposedly, so many prayers go unanswered, because we first have to obtain legal verdicts from heaven. Basically, God is unable to bless us unless we do something. So one of the, um, one of the, the, the main preacher of this is a man by the name of Robert Henderson, and I wanted to get more information off his blog as to how this exactly works. 
Here's a quote. One of the functions of the heavenly courts is to unlock our destinies by dissolving curses against us that are denying and delaying our futures. Another crucial issue to dissolving curses is to recognize that they can operate among a New Testament people. Okay, okay, let, let, let's pause there for a second. Okay. Because here, here we've got this, this quote, uh, and he, we've been saying all along, most of the stuff is superstition. Most of the stuff is superstition. Here you have a Christian who's writing books and doing videos and all of this saying, we need to dissolve these generational curses and they can happen amongst a New Testament people. We are a New Testament people. He's saying this is alive and well today. So this is a very completely opposite perspective and opposite entrance to this, this, this conversation that we're having here. Um, so continuing, he said, when Jesus declared it is finished on the cross, he was declaring that every legal requirement had been met for the reconciliation and reclaiming of all things back to God. The problem is that there is one thing for a legal verdict to be rendered and another for the execution of it to take place. When a judge sits on a bench and renders a verdict, he doesn't then come down from that bench and enforce it. There are others who must take the legal rendering of the judge and execute it into place until it has practical and functional ramifications. The Holy Spirit came to empower us to be the officers of the court to execute into place that judgment. Time out. Time out. So what he sounds like he's doing is he's taking the, the, the beauty of the ransom price of Jesus and the beauty of the, the promise of reconciliation because of the ransom, and he's trying to apply it to your everyday life and trying to remove curses. Folks, that is not what the ransom is about. The reconciliation that Jesus brought is for the world of mankind, to bring the world back to God, not what you see in your little mind in terms of curses. He is completely, completely upending the message, the main point of the gospel, the main point. I'm sure you have more, don't you? Well, I've got a quote from oh, another prosperity great. gospel so you, blog. So you want to get in on this too, I do, do indeed. Oh, okay. And this is from DougAddison.com. And quote, the courts of heaven operate similar to the legal system we see on earth because of all the injustices happening in the world. God is releasing new revelation about gaining justice through the courts of heaven. The cross of Christ is our verdict, but there are times we need to enforce this by entering into the justice system of God. We operate in the courts of heaven through prayer and an intimate relationship with the Lord. Okay. Let's pause here for another moment, because enough is enough. This idea of the entering into the courts of heaven, I, I, Julie, you sent me a video, like a 40-minute video on this to explain it, and I actually watched it. I watched it with pen in hand, and I was furiously taking notes on this. And folks, I want to tell you, if this is something that you are aspiring to, to try to get rid of the curses in your life, stop now. This is as fictitious as it can get. Let me just show you two scriptures that they grossly misrepresent. First, in Matthew 5.22, Jesus is talking about agree with your adversary before you go to the court so you can have an easy verdict. And what they say in, in that video, they said, you need to agree with Satan about the sins that you've committed. What? When are you having a conversation with Satan? Stop it. That's not what Jesus meant. Not even remotely close. Even worse than that, they talk about Psalm 40, verse 7. I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God, your law is written in my heart. And they say, well, in that scroll, that's the legal scroll, and this is where you have to, you have to find your legal representation. That scripture is about Jesus. Look it up in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Paul tells us, 
they take scriptures and they quote a lot of them and they misrepresent them and they create a scenario about a court in heaven that is fictitious. It does not exist. And they tell you it's there to remove curses, which are superstition. Please don't go down this road. Well, it's really complex. You know, I tried to get it like a, even play a soundbite. We can have a little video, but it was just, you know, the introduction is hours long. And then there's heavenly bailiffs of angels and defense attorneys yeah. and witnesses and default judgments. So it's kind of like the Harry Potter books. You know, you have to, you have, it's like a whole new world with characters and storyline and terms and definitions of how things would work in that magical world. You really have to invest a lot of time, money, and energy into figuring out how this would remove curses for you. And Stay again, away. yeah, and most of these things are are, are are fictitious, just like Harry Potter. I mean, it's, talk, it's talking about witchcraft. Let's get it straight, okay? So all of this, quote, new revelation, because they're saying this is new, and I've got a big issue with that, but we won't go there now, with no scriptural basis. Let's focus. What are we supposed to be believing in if we have these kinds of fears? First Peter 5, 6 to 8. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of a sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan, the idea of agreeing with Satan about your sins, Satan is trying to devour you. Be careful. Be on the alert. Stay away from him. So Satan is then behind those some curses that are real, and I'm, I'm hoping we're going to talk about that in the next you know two parts. Because didn't God curse people in the Bible? Yes, He did. Yes, yes. There. Now we have to be careful with that word, and I'm going to begin to explain that in a few minutes. But there are curses in the Bible. Let's not make a mistake about that. And parts two and three, we're going to focus entirely on the scriptures. So please, please come back for those two parts. This is really, really important. We want to understand what we should do. Today, we're, un we're unfolding the idea and the superstitions that we need to be aware of, and we need to look inside of ourselves and say, am I susceptible to these things? Jonathan, from fearing curses to faith and courage, what do we have? As the confusion surrounding the superstition of curses grows and creeps into Christianity, let us stand on the firm ground of Scripture, knowing that Satan would like nothing better than to scare us into following confusion and deception. Rick, that's his game, and he plays it well. He does. He does, and we better be aware. All right. Let's go back to where we started. Let's begin to put our biblical understanding of curses in order. Jonathan, I'm going to ask you to go back to the first scripture that we read but really didn't comment on, Genesis 3, 14, and then 16 and 17. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So God cursed Satan, we had mentioned that earlier, in the form of a serpent, and God also cursed the ground for Adam's sake. So you got to ask yourself the question, why didn't God curse Eve? Well, he didn't curse Adam either. Okay, wait a minute now. Let's, let's pause here. 
we often speak about Adam and Eve being under the curse of sin, and we stand by that. However, in light of today's discussion, and in light of the world's definition of curse, meaning wishing harm to someone, we absolutely need to clarify there's a difference. For Adam and Eve, being under the curse of sin meant facing the severe consequence of their sinful action. God did not want them to be harmed. He did want them to learn. The idea of a curse in today's world is you wish harm on someone. God didn't do that. Let's be clear. When God placed these curses, he was expressing execration. Remember that word, Jonathan, you started the, the, the podcast with? A loathing for that which he cursed. So what does that mean? Well, when God cursed Satan, that meant he, Satan, would be out of the light of God's power and presence. But he would be allowed to exist with the limited power God would allow him to wield. So he was out of God's light, but still was allowed to hold on to some power. Here's the thing about God Almighty we need to understand. Any being outside of the light of God is inherently evil and therefore will act against God's will. That's just the way it works in this great universe. God sees any being outside of his light as treasonous, and therefore he sees it with loathing. So when it says God cursed Satan, he sees him with loathing because he's a treasonous being trying to undo the greatness and goodness and mercy and power and benevolence of God. And that goes along with the fallen angels that followed after him and continued with that chaos. Yes, absolutely. So when God cursed the ground for Adam's sake, he ceased to develop and cultivate the ground's productivity to the level of the Garden of Eden. Remember, you had the garden that was all ready to go and the rest of the world that wasn't. The ground outside of the garden would now grow things haphazardly without the refinements from God's hand to maximize its efficiency. Adam's consequence was to manage this ground without God's hand. The ground was cursed. It was not finished. It didn't stay within the light of God. So the ground was cursed so man could learn. This is what we're dealing with here. We need to understand when God cursed, it wasn't that he wished evil. It was that he planned consequence for the sake of learning. So the English word curse is so imprecise. And in the rest of this three-part series, we're going to see that Old Testament Hebrew has 14 different words for our one English word curse. And the New Testament Greek has nine, all with different shades of meaning. And that's just like the word love in the New Testament. Filio, agape, Philadelphia, agapeo. They all have different shades or hues of meaning, and we call it all love. But there's still a lot of questions that we have to answer. So next week, we're going to talk about what curses did God proclaim in the Old Testament? Were there generational curses? And what does that even mean? What is the Old Testament biblical definition of curse? And is it different from how we use the word today? Does God give permission for people to curse others? I'm very curious about that. There's just so much more to talk about. And in two weeks, we'll be asking, what role did curses play in the New Testament? How are curses defined in the New Testament in relation to the Old Testament and today? Are, are there real curses today? If so, what is their source of power? Is God cursing people today? Are we either walking under a blessing or under a curse? 
So folks, as we look at this, we've scratched the surface. Today we intended to put curses on the table and to try to look at them from a very logical perspective by examining the way we think, the kind of input we get, the physiological makeup of the human, of the human form that can give us tendencies toward one thing or another. Today we wanted to put the idea on the table and say, please be careful because most of this is a result of our own internal thinking, our own internal fears, of suggestion, of all of the things that are around us. Next week, we're going to be focusing further on developing what is God's part? And then the week following, what is our part? How do we deal with this? And what if you're afraid? Or what if you know people who are afraid? What do you say? What do you do? How do you think? All of these things are parts of what's coming up in the next two podcasts. So folks, the bottom line here is this. As a Christian, stand on the firm foundation of Scripture and Scripture alone. We are given much, that we talked about today, much to stand on and to realize that our lives are in God's hand. Think about it. Folks, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions in this episode and other questions at ChristianQuestions.com. We'll talk to you next week.